Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right, guys, if you would, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back there for you. Uh, That's our gift to you. We want to make sure that you've got the Word of God in your hands. And I know it's been several weeks here since that we we looked at the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, But let me do a a real short review before we dive in. Um, Matthew introduced us to a new character in his Gospel in in chapter 3. And quite the character he is, uh, his name is John the Baptizer, a.k.a. Crazy John. All right, we learned how the, uh, the last Old Testament book, the book of Malachi, how, that, how uh, Malachi prophesied about John coming in the, the power and the spirit of Elijah. Uh, we learned about his miraculous birth. John had the power of the Holy Spirit before he was even born. We learned that John's father, Zechariah, how he was a priest, but John left the priesthood to become a Baptist, of all things. After 400 years of God's silence, you know, John shows up with this thunderous message for his people. And that message is repent. His message is you got to be converted. If we could read between the lines in his sermon, he said something like this, you know, you guys have been living your entire life the wrong way. You think you're a good person but you're self-absorbed, you're self-righteous, and all of that has deceived you. And that was John's sermon. And it's summarized in Scripture as repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, today we're going to learn more about John the baptizer. Not only was John's message not what the Jews wanted to hear, but, you know, his very being, his very essence, it also raged against the world and its religion. How so? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1 and following. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, River, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. 
And don't presume to say to yourself, well, we've got Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe, well, it's already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not even worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the shaft he will burn with fire that never goes out. And this is the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Thank you, guys. Have a seat. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 4. Now, John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Now, ladies, it may surprise you that John the baptizer is single. I heard that he was on Match.com, so let's take a look at his profile pic here. John's physical appearance is a living sermon. John's wardrobe matched his message. Everything about John is a rebuke. He chastises the luxuries that all the world offers us. So, so why did John wear a camel hair garment? Well, because it was durable. It was cheap. John's attire was also in direct opposition to the audacious flowing garb of the current religious leaders. So don't, let's not miss this for today. Um, it, it's a wake-up call for us, for those of us that, that spend a lot of time shopping, maybe a little too much time shopping for those clothes. It's a red flag for those. <laughs> That's the Holy Spirit convicting you, I just want to say. It's a red flag for those of us who spend way too much time looking at ourselves in the mirror and complaining that we don't have enough. John also has a leather belt. Why, why does he have a leather belt? Well, once again, it's not for fashion. It's for durability. So in other words, John the baptizer, he shows up after 400 years of God's silence, and he looks like this right? And he is a walking contradiction to the rest of Israel's leaders. And it really, it's a wake-up call for us today. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this is how they, they dressed. They were well-dressed. They were well-fed. They were sophisticated. So in other words, they're incredibly worldly, just like us. And I can't help but notice you know, nothing really has changed since these religious leaders, these religious businessmen, these religious politicians that, that we see on the screen today are the same ones that we see on YouTube as well with their brand name clothes. But one look at John, and, and, and we would assume like this guy is some kind of homeless lunatic, right? 
But we want to be real careful to, to judge that book by its cover. Because the Jews also knew, they also knew that John reminded them of someone else. And that was Elijah. Verse 4 continues here. His food was locust and wild honey. John's food was as simple as his clothing. Mmm, locust. John ate insects. Wow. The desert locust, literally, it's just a large grasshopper. The, the poor, they still eat it today in the Middle East. So how do you eat locusts? <laughs> Roasted? Baked? Locust stew? Fried? Fried locusts? Yeah, fried. Do they taste like chicken? <laughs> You know, some people believe that Matthew is referring to a tree here uh, with this word locust, that there was a certain tree that produced fruit, and it was nicknamed locust. And it really is incredible how people always want to lessen the truth about the reality of God's word. Uh, the further away that we get from the actual narrative, the more that we think we know about what happened during that time. <laughs> So, dear friends, if you hear that, that, that's not true. Locust means locust. John ate, he ate insects. Now, the honey that John ate was not something that he picked up, obviously, at the local grocery store. It wasn't processed. It wasn't cleaned. It was wild honey. Uh, he had to put his hand in the actual hive. He had to turn over the rock, right? He risked being stung by hundreds of bees uh, to eat. And once again, I think John is getting our attention today to our own idol of food. I mean, how picky are we when it comes to food? And the amount of food that we eat, right? Are we complaining? Are we grumbling about eating the, the same old thing on a weekly basis? Do we send things back to the restaurant because it's not cooked exactly the way that we want it? See, the main point here is that John's life is a living protest against the world and, and all of its luxuries. So instead of grumbling about food and clothing and shelter, um, guys, I would say we need to confess our attitudes towards these things as sin. Because we have more than enough today, don't we? I mean, when, when was the last time that you thank God for the clothes on your back and the, and the roof over your head and the food in your fridge? Verse 5, then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him. So John is Israel's first prophet in over four centuries. And, and that alone is going to draw some attention here. On top of that, John's preaching had an immediate uh, dramatic impact on Israel. I mean, think about this. People were walking all the way from Jerusalem, which is a two to three day trip. To hear John preach. Verse 6, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. They were confessing their sins. So people came to listen to John, but they also came to be baptized by him. Now today, we may not see really anything unusual about that because we're used to seeing people being baptized. We're, we're used to seeing uh, or hearing people confess their sins. But at this time, John was baptizing Jews. And Jews don't get baptized. Jews baptized Gentiles into Judaism, but Jews themselves were not baptized. 
Uh, a Jew had to be ritually pure before entering the temple. Uh, purity could be lost in, in many, many ways. So the primary way of restoring a, a Jew's purity was through a mikvah, which is a, a pool of water. Uh, but this is not baptism. It's similar, but it's not baptism. So once again, we see John the baptizer here. He's sticking it to the religious man. John was telling the Jews that their days of ritual purity, those days are over. Israel does not belong to God simply because of its heritage or the external works of Judaism. They too, they must confess their sins. They must be baptized just like everybody else. So here's the deal. John's baptism is a special baptism for the Jews. It's not like the one that, that you and I participated in. John's baptism is a sign of repentance that looks forward to the Messiah's coming. John's role as a prophet was to prepare the Jews for Jesus. And part of that preparation was a baptism of repentance. So baptism, this idea, baptizo, it means to totally immerse or to dip. Uh, think of it when you, when you dip a piece of cloth into dye and you pull it out and the, the, the piece of cloth is now a different color. That's the idea of baptism. Verse 6 continues here, confessing their sins. So we see here how baptism and, and the confession of sins, those are two sides of the same coin. Someone once said that the only prayer that God hears from a non-believer is the prayer of repentance. The first step of repentance is confession. When we confess our sins, we acknowledge that we are indeed sinners. Do you guys remember that pop quiz from several weeks ago? We, where we learned that we were all lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterers with no hope for salvation. Nobody remembers that quiz. Psalm 51.3 says this, For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. So dear friends, this is why we must confess our sins on a daily basis. Our sin is always before us. There's always, God is always working on us, isn't he? Isn't he? Verse 7, So when John saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are the religious VIPs of the day. We'll start with the Pharisees here. The, the word Pharisee, it means separation or separated ones. They separated themselves not only from the Gentiles and the tax collectors, but basically anybody else that they considered sinners. They did the opposite of what they were supposed to do. Israel was supposed to spread the good news of Yahweh as the one true living God to the other nations, but they refused to do that. They separated themselves from other people instead of engaging with others. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were the, the ultra-liberals at the other end of the Jewish religious spectrum. They were really the, the religious businessmen, the, the politicians. They were more business and political than religious. They, um, they compromised their faith with politics and, and power and money. They really didn't care about God. They didn't care about doctrine. Uh, so, for example, they denied the existence of angels. 
They denied the resurrection. They denied anything supernatural. And the Sadducees, they considered themselves really masters of their own destinies. And that's where they get their name, because it's because of their, their false belief system. And that's why we call them sad, you see. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't, they didn't care for one another. Don't, don't lump them into the same group now. They didn't like one another. Um, their religiosity, it put them in the same camp as all other religions, but they didn't, they didn't, um, they didn't spend time with one another. And really, when you think about this, there are only two religions. Number one, there's the religion of divine accomplishment, which is the Judeo-Christian faith. And number two, there's the religion of human suffering. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they base their eternal security on their own, their own efforts. So it really was a religion based on outward conformity to meet their own standards through their own self-effort. In other words, it was all about them. Verse 7, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Notice John didn't say, welcome brothers, come on in, welcome Reverend Dr. So-and-so, I've, I've been expecting you. No, he calls them snakes. Can you imagine walking into a new church and someone calling you and your family a brood of vipers? Maybe you've had that experience, I don't know. Why is, this, why is this man of God so harsh, and why is he so direct? Why isn't he more kind? Why is he not more sensitive? Because John knew that they were, the, they were not there to confess their sins and to be baptized. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were way above all of that nonsense. They were there not to participate in repentance. They were there to investigate what all the noise was about. So the, there's this thing called the, the Sanhedrin, and it was, it was really a religious supreme court. And they had an unofficial policy. What they would do is they would conduct a formal investigation when they heard of anything dealing with the Messiah. So the investigation included two stages. Number one, it had uh, the observation stage. And number two, it had the interrogation stage. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the, the observation stage by these Pharisees and these Sadducees. Uh, they were to do nothing at this point but observe what was being said and taught during this stage. And then after a certain period of time, they went back to Jerusalem to give a report. Now, I would have loved to, to read that report. He called us a brood of vipers. Well, the Sanhedrin would then issue a verdict. Is this something that they need to investigate further? And if they did, uh, basically they thought, well, this, may, this might disrupt my career, so we're going we're gonna to move this to the second stage of interrogation. Uh, but please know this, guys. John doesn't give a rip about any investigation whatsoever. John knew that their problem was the same problem everybody else had. How does a sinner stand in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God? You can't. 
You can't. And yet God has provided a way that you can, and it's through confession and repentance. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they don't want anything to do with that. So he calls them a brood of vipers. Your translation may, may read offspring. The phrase, it means descendants. It means children. Um, vipers are small poisonous desert snakes. John would have been very familiar with them. John chose his terminology very carefully here because young vipers often killed their mothers during the birth process. Vipers, they, they often look like small dead branches. People would accidentally pick them up. They would get bit. In fact, the Apostle Paul happened to him when he was on the island of, of Malta, if you remember that. He was gathering some firewood to stay warm. He got bit. And then Jesus also borrowed this phrase from John as well. And the reason that John and Jesus both like this term, brood of vipers, is because it pointed to the Pharisees and the Sadducees' religious hypocrisy. Like the desert viper, they too, they appeared harmless, but their self-imposed brand of, of works-based salvation, it also was deadly. Verse 7, John the baptizer, he continues here. He says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? So we see more of John's personality here in verse 7. I think like many of you, he has the spiritual gift of sarcasm. You know, he's asking, who, who deluded you guys into thinking that you can escape God's wrath for your own sin? The picture here in verse 7 is that of a farmer burning his field after harvest. Obviously, uh, all the snakes and all the other critters there that made their home in that field, they're going to flee from the fire. So that's the picture. Verse 8 continues. He says, Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. So in verse 7, John calls the, the religious muckety-mucks here, he calls them vipers. But maybe in John 8, John's having second thoughts. Maybe I'm being too harsh on him. So if any of these Pharisees and these Sadducees change their mind, he, he tells them exactly what they need to do. They need to produce good fruit. Now Luke's gospel tells us what that good fruit looks like. Now, keep in mind, John was speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees at this time, but look what happens in Luke's gospel. Luke 3.10, the crowd chimes in, and they say, well, wait a second, what should we do? And John replies, he says, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he told them, don't collect any more than, than what you've been authorized. Some soldiers, they also questioned him, what should we do? And he said, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. So bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, guys, it, it, it does something to us. It changes us from the inside out. So dear friends, if, if you have confessed your sins, if you've been baptized, and yet you're still acting like that same old grouchy, grumpy, self-centered person, that self-righteous, that arrogant person that you've always been, something's wrong. And that brings us to key point number one. A fruitless Christian is no Christian at all. 
A fruitless Christian is no Christian at all. It's impossible for God to save our wretched souls by the imputed sacrifice of Jesus Christ and for us not to change. There's a volitional side of repentance here. So there's a a deliberate, voluntary, there's an intentional willingness for us to change. Now that change is slow. (laughs) It's very slow. It's very gradual. There's lots of setbacks with it. But there is change and there will be fruit. As as, uh, the Apostle James points out, he says, faith, if your faith has no, no works, it's dead. You're still spiritually dead if you're not compelled unto good works. Because true repentance, it always, always, always involves a changed life. Our change is motivated by love. We now love God and we love people, right? That's the cross. We love God, love people. Now, we talked about the recognition and the confession of our personal sin, but John, as John continues here, We're going to learn that there's an intellectual side of confession, and many of us believe that that's the first step. Uh, In fact, if we don't go through this process of repentance, we could really find ourselves in a dangerous place. Repentance, it's not a one-and-done deal. Um, It's a process. So if we stop here with confession, we tend to think, well, that's all we need to do. And we see examples of this throughout all of Scripture. Uh, starting in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh, he admitted his sin, but he stopped there. Balaam, he admitted his sin, but he didn't repent. Achan, he got all greedy in the book of Joshua. He acknowledged his sin, but he didn't repent. King Saul, he confessed his sin. He stopped there. The rich young ruler, he went away sad, but unrepentant. Even Judas Iscariot, He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. All of these men recognized their sin, but none of them repented. Brings us to key point number two. If you want a real simple definition of repentance, it simply is you're sorry enough to change. Repentance means that you're sorry enough to change. They were, they were sorry from a worldly standpoint, but they were not sorry enough to change. They were not sorry enough to stop doing what they've always done. The Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. So a truly repentant person is overwhelmed with guilt, yes, Not because they got caught, but because they primarily sinned against the holy God. That's the difference. Verse 9, John continues here. He says, don't presume to say to yourself, oh, come on, John. We've got Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. So don't you hate when a prophet reads your mind? God is not impressed by lineage. No one avoids God's judgment because of his ancestry. For us today, that means it doesn't matter if we grew up in a Christian home 
on the backs of uh, our parents' faith. So what John is saying is, uh, he's saying, you know, you guys think Abraham's your father. Big deal. Big deal. You see these stones? If God wanted to, he could snap his fingers and turn children of God from those stones. John's telling these men, your heart is as hard uh, spiritually as a stone. You need to be converted. You must be converted. And by the way, remember the story Jesus told about the, the Jewish rich man and the poor man named Lazarus? Remember that? Luke 16, 24. He cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in these flames. Wow, that's a Jew. Pharisees, they should have recognized this. Ezekiel 36, 25, he writes this. He says, I, this is God speaking. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. See, guys, God is the one who does the work of salvation. Our fruit, though, is proof of that salvation. John, the baptizer, continues here in verse 10. He says, the axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You guys see the urgency here? The kingdom of God, it's not going to come in some distant time frame. The picture is that there is one more swing of that axe, and that tree is going to come crashing down. That's how close things are. At the end of every harvest season, the farmer would, would go through his vineyard. He'd be looking for plants that did not bear good fruit. And what they would do is they would cut those, those trees down. And the reason they did that was because they were unproductive. They were, they were um, using all the nutrients from the soil, but they were not bearing good fruit. So a useless fruit tree is only good for one thing, and that's firewood. Jesus said the same thing in John 15, 5. He said, I'm the vine, you guys are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit, yes, because you can't do a thing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, they throw them into the fire, and they are burned. John continues here in verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not even worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. So in verse 11, John gives a glimpse of hope here. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. So in other words, John's baptism, it represents an outward profession of an inward repentance. All right? It's a sign. John's baptism, though, could not change a person's heart. In verse 11, he continues, he says, But the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not even worthy to remove his sandals. 
So one of the lowliest tasks of a, a slave in the first century was to remove the sandals of his master and to wash his feet. This task was so repulsive that Jewish slave owners, they, they didn't even require that of uh, Jewish slaves to perform it. But you remember the Last Supper. Jesus washed the disciples' feet, didn't he? It's interesting, though, the disciples did not wash one another's feet. That's how repulsive this act was. But John the baptizer says he basically saw himself more unworthy of a Jewish slave in the presence of Jesus. So John continues, he says, he himself, so that's Jesus, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So in other words, Jesus Christ will baptize you with the very power of God himself, making you holy through inner transformation. He's going to change your heart. This doesn't have to do with any external works. The baptism of the Holy Spirit changes your personhood. It changes everything about you. Uh, theologically, we call this regeneration. The moment that you are born again, God has regenerated your soul. He has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. We see this in Ephesians 1.13. So in him, in Jesus, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. Dear friends, that's such good news. Verse 11, John continues. He says, he himself, Jesus, will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Now, there are several interpretations when it comes to this phrase, Holy Spirit and fire. Some people say that this verse refers to Pentecost. Others believe that this fire is a refining fire in the believer's life. It, it, it deals with sanctification. So let's take a look at both real quick. If we look at Acts 2 in dealing with Pentecost, Acts 2.3, Scripture says this, they saw tongues like flames of fire. Like flames of fire. It wasn't fire, but the tongue resembled fire. So this is where context becomes king for correct biblical interpretation here. So back in verse 10, We've got fire that's used as a metaphor for judgment. In verse 11, we've got a question about what fire really is. So let's keep reading. In verse 12, his winnowing shovel, so Jesus, his winnowing shovel is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. So in verse 12, we also see John using fire as a metaphor for judgment. So if we go back to verse 11, it seems logical, doesn't it? That the fire also represents judgment. Why would, why would John change the meaning of, of the word fire mid-sentence? Secondly, some people believe that this fire in, in verse 11 refers to a refining fire in the believer's life, and, and there are texts for that, but this is not one of them. The whole context, the whole passage um, reveals that to us. So we've got three verses, all with the same context of fire being used as a metaphor for God's judgment on sin. So back to verse 11. John says, he himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So we're seeing one baptism that has two elements. So John is making a huge distinction here between believers 
those baptized with the Holy Spirit, those who have been um, gone through conversion and regeneration, and unbelievers, those baptized with, with the fire of God's judgment. And we see this as John the baptizer, he continues in verse 12. He says his winnowing shovel is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and he's going to gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with fire that never goes out. So John is now using the image of a farmer separating wheat from, from shaft. Uh, the, the farmer here, what he would do is he would take a, a flat shovel. He would toss the grain straight up into the air. The wind would, would blow the, the chaff away. The wheat would fall it down to the ground. So the wheat represents the believers, and it's preserved for the barn, also known as heaven. Look, look at verse 12. He says, his wheat He's going to clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat, so his people, into his barn, heaven. Um, the chaff, the unbelievers, is burned with fire, also known as hell. If you need a cross-reference for that, write down Psalm 1, the gateway psalm, Psalm 1. So in other words, this passage, it teaches that every person, doesn't matter if you're a believer or non-believer, you're going to experience a baptism. You're going to experience an immersion of Jesus when he appears. It's either going to be an immersion of blessing with the indwelling Holy Spirit, or it's going to be an immersion of fire with judgment. You guys see the crisis that John is, is painting here? The axe is laid at the tree. One more swing and it's coming down. He says the shovel is already in Jesus' hand. All he has to do is just throw that weed up. And that's why John preaches, repent, the kingdom of, of heaven is near. So what's all this mean for us today? Well, we don't live in the first century. We live in a very different world, don't we? We live in a world of pandemics. We live in a world of vaccinations and injections. Mask or no mask? Should we defund the, uh, the police department or not? And we watch the riots on, on the news, all the race relations, all the, the CRT discussions. We've got the, the legal marriage rights of sodomites and lesbians. We've got the, the legal rights of transsexuals. We're on the, the verge of World War III we're dealing with inflation. Digital currency is right around the corner. We're going to be tracking every dime that you spend. The threat of cyber attacks. They could change the landscape of, of everything that we've ever known. We've got Supreme Court justice nominees who, who don't know what a woman is. And she's a woman. We've got Hollywood actors who feel com that it's completely appropriate to physically assault Hollywood comedians because they can't take a joke. And then they blame the whole thing on Satan. I thought that was pretty entertaining. So let me ask you, how much control do you have over all of those things? How much control do you have over your faith? Dear friends, these things in the world, they're indicators. The axe 
is indeed at the root of the tree. These headlines, what they do is they prove to us that Jesus has his winnowing fork in his hand. Everything that you've heard today from God's word is absolutely true. And, and, And my message to you today is the same message of John the baptizer. He says, repent, dear friends, the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus is coming soon. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you are coming back soon. Lord, we long for that day. But until that day comes, you've called your church to be salt and light. You've called us to be different. You've called us to spread this amazing news of, of how, how do we answer this, this question of how does a sinner stand in the presence of a holy God? And we can say with confidence because of the cross of Christ, because of the imputed righteousness of the blood that was shed, that Jesus took our place and he can take your place too. Father, may we never get over that gospel message. May we never get numb to hearing that you sent your son from heaven to become a man. To walk with sinners, to show us how to live, to take our place. We are incredibly grateful. And Father, this week, if you place people in front of us that have spiritual questions... Please give us the words to speak and the tone in which to say them when it comes to this gospel message. Lord, we love you. Thank you for our time. Thank you for blessing us with your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.